0: All right, good morning, everybody. I don't, you know, this is just a year. This, something has happened, I think, in this church over this last month, January, month of prayer and fasting. We've got our our big four prayer requests for praying for the year. We've got these specific ones. I, I mean, we've prayed stuff together before as a church, but this is the first time I think we've done it at this level, at this scale of where, as a church, we are praying about specific things for God to do big things. We're praying for the camp. God, those of you who were at the prayer summit last week, some huge things happening there, and church renewal, and Tupendani, and, and all this stuff. And, and I think, I just feel like God is saying, this is the year of answered prayer. We're going we're gonna to pray some really big things together, like we've never prayed before, and we're going to see God answer them, and, and that's just exciting. I'm, I'm very pumped about it. So, uh, but anyway, now we'll just move on to the message here. Um, we're, uh, we're in this series called Seven. It's about the seven letters, the seven churches in Revelation chapters 1 to 3. And today we come up to the, to the second one. I'm just going to get this out of the way because I'm going to kick it. But uh, we come up to the second letter, the letter to the church at Smyrna in Revelation 2, verses 8 to 11. And, uh, and so it begins in verse 8 there, And to the angel of the church in Smyrna right. Now, like I did last week with Ephesus, I just want to give you a little background, okay? Some of you may be more interested in this, less interested some of you, but just a little bit of history, a little bit of background, uh, what Smyrna was like, what, the, what it was uh, like to be a Christian there, who some of the Christians were who were there. Um, because it just helps bring the rest of the letter alive as to, when, when you see these are real people, real churches, then the rest of the letter begins to make sense. And so, a little bit of background history to start this message off. Smyrna, uh, just like Ephesus, was a very big city in the province of Asia. And a population uh, estimates are always, it's hard to figure out what a population was in an ancient city like that. But, but best estimates estimate Smyrna was about 150,000 people, or maybe up to 150,000 uh, people, which is a huge city for that time, very densely populated for that time. And, uh, and it was also a, a bad, last week we looked at how Ephesus, Ephesus was hostile to Christianity, right? Remember that from last week? Well, Smyrna was worse, okay? Smyrna was kind of like ground zero in the world for emperor uh, worship in the Roman Empire, okay? Uh, Smyrna was one of the first cities in the world to build a temple to the Roman Empire. And they did that about 200 years already before Jesus was born. They built a a, a temple, a big temple in Smyrna to the Roman Empire, and they actually worshipped Rome. And then they they built another temple like that. And again, in those days, building big buildings like that, that was a big deal. And just a couple of decades before Jesus was born in Smyrna. They built another big temple. They built it to the emperor Tiberius, and, uh, and they were worshiping the emperor. So this was like, this was, Smyrna was, like I said, ground zero. It was kind of like the center for emperor worship and, uh, and the worship of the Roman Empire uh, in New Testament times, and it, so it was a very, very difficult place to be a Christian, highly persecuted, okay? And just to, to show you that, I want to tell you uh, a little bit of background again. I want to tell you a story about one of the most famous Christians from the early church who was from Smyrna. In fact, we actually know, okay, seven letters to the churches here in, in Revelation, and each, each letter, you know, goes out into the angel of the church in, in Ephesus, the angel of the church in Smyrna, we, we've seen that. And I've showed you already a few weeks ago how when it's time about angel there. It's not an angel like an angelic being. These were written to leaders of churches. So it was re- these letters were written to a pastor of a church, and then a pastor would read it to the church, okay, and take the church through it. Um, now, in the seven letters, we don't know. I mean, we don't have names. It doesn't give us the name of the pastor in each of the churches. But actually, in this Smyrna letter, we actually know. This is the only one of the seven where we actually can be very confident that we know who the person was who got this letter and read it to the church of Smyrna. He was a very famous uh, uh, Christian from the early church. His name was Polycarp, okay? And and please don't all go rushing out writing that down that that's what you're going to name your kids. Uh, It's probably not a great name, at least I don't think so. But anyway, Polycarp, okay? Uh, Famous, and uh, we know a lot about Polycarp from early church writings. He's written about in a number of different sources. But Polycarp was personally discipled by the Apostle John, who was obviously the guy who walked with the disciples, he was with Jesus, he wrote the Gospel of John, he wrote 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and he wrote the book of Revelation, which we're, uh, you know, preaching out of here. Um, Polycarp was personally discipled by that John, okay? And one of the reasons Polycarp was so famous is when Polycarp died years later, he He died, and I talked about how Smyrna was a center for emperor worship, and he was actually killed, which I'll get to in just a moment as well, because he refused to worship the emperor. But he lived, God miraculously protected him when many other Christians in Smyrna were being killed already, and Polycarp lived to be 86, and he was the pastor of the church at Smyrna for about 60 years, almost 60 years. And uh, and so we know from a number of different writings that John actually put him in charge of the church at Smyrna okay? And so, uh, and so he was the pastor. And I just wanted to just to, again, just again, a little bit of background. Our churches, uh, many of us today, we are so weak on church history. And, and we don't know our church history. And we need to know this, some of our spiritual fathers. And not to mention, it gives us a, a, a new way of looking at suffering and stuff. And it'll help you understand this letter a little bit more. So I'll tell you about how Polycarp died, okay? When he died in 155 A.D., Um, One of the reasons, uh, just going back a little bit there, one of the reasons he was so famous is because he was probably the last living link that the early church had to the apostles. Uh, When he died in 155 at the age of 86, he was one of the last people on earth, certainly one of the last church leaders, who had actually known the apostles personally. After he died, it kind of went like how it is now in the church. We follow the word of God. We follow Jesus. But nobody here actually knows the people who wrote this book or were in these stories. Polycarp was sort of the last living link. He actually knew the people in the Old Testament, okay? And after that, the church moved into a new era where we didn't have that connection anymore. Um, but anyway, when he died, he 86 years old. Um, an amazing story. Uh, three days before his death, he's, uh, he's asleep. He has a dream, and in his dream, he sees himself uh, sleeping on his pillow and then the, the pillow bursts into flames, okay? And so he gets up in the morning, he says to the people who are staying with him, he says, the Romans are gonna burn me at the stake. And so right away, they were, oh, they were alarmed, we gotta get you out of here. And it's not bad to flee persecution. We see it in the book of Acts. Many times the believers would flee persecution, spread the gospel all over. But sometimes the Holy Spirit just witnesses in your, in your spirit, it's not, you're not running anymore. And Polycarp said, I'm, I'm, the Lord's will be done, I'm not running. And sure enough, three days after that, Dream soldiers come to the house where he's staying, and uh, to, to bring him to the arena, the, the pro consul, the governor, was in the arena already and was going to torture him for his faith. And so, these soldiers, three days later, after he has this dream, soldiers come to his house. And uh, now, the amazing thing is, uh, uh, you know, you got to think these soldiers are, are brutal men. I mean, these soldiers have seen crucifixions. I mean, it just just awful stuff, they have killed people, they've done all kinds of stuff, and they've dragged many a person away to the arena to be fed to beasts and, and killed in all, in all kinds of creative and, and horrible ways. And so these guys show up to, to arrest Polycarp and haul him off to the arena to be tortured, and when they get there, Polycarp invites them into his house and says, I want to serve you dinner. And, and so, I mean, that's the first thing is these guys are shocked. He invites them into his house, he serves them a real good meal, Okay. And uh, so right away, they're thinking, and some of the Christians, and again, there's lots of writings. Polycarp, that's one of the reasons we know so much about his life is so many people wrote about him and lots of writings about him. Um, But some of the people who witnessed this uh, later said that the soldiers began to look around and wonder why they had come to arrest him in the first place. And, And so anyway, he feeds them a meal, okay? When these guys are used to coming to houses and seeing people scream and try to run away or try to kill them or whatever, this guy invites them in to have dinner. And then at the end of dinner, he says, now before you guys take me away to the arena, I just want an hour to pray. And, uh, and so he stands up in their midst and he, and he begins to pray. And as I was you know, reading uh, back up a little bit on my church history this week and just marveling at the story and this man and, and some of the stuff that happened here at this place, this letter to the church at Smyrna. This is, this is their pastor. This is what happened to him. This is how he died. Um, this is the guy who would have read this letter to the church. Uh, I was immediately reminded you know, so here he is in the hour of his trial. First, he loves on his enemies, okay? They come, and instead of screaming at them and trying to kill them, trying to get away, first, he just, he feeds them supper. And then the second thing is, in the hour of his trial, he says, I, I gotta have some time for prayer. And right away, it just reminded me, as I'm, as I'm reading this, I go back, and uh, I thought of Jesus and his disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? Because isn't that the exact same thing that Jesus did in his hour of trial, Right? He knew what was about to happen. He knew he was about to be arrested, and he goes off into the Garden of Gethsemane because he's about to undergo this trial, this intense trial, and he says, the Son of God, think about it, if the Son of God needed to pray in the heat of the trial, how much more do, do you and I need to pray? The Son of God said, I'm about to go through an intense trial. I need to pray first. And so we read in all the Gospels, we read that Jesus went to the Garden of Gethsemane and he prayed probably for a couple of hours, because he goes away and he prays a couple of times, and at least one of the times, he went away for an hour. So he went and he prayed for a couple of hours, and he actually said to the disciples, he said to them, and, and I just thought I would put up the verse there, Matthew twenty-six forty-one. he said to the disciples, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Now, what, what's he talking about there? The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Five verses before this verse, 26 verse 35, or 36. So it's either five or six verses. Just look it up. But it's just a few verses. I think it's five. Anyway, just a few verses before this verse. Peter said to Jesus, he said, I would rather die than deny you. And of course, Jesus knows what's coming. And I can just see him inside thinking, Peter, 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 Peter. You have no idea what's about to come, right? And uh, he's not mad at Peter. He knows, I mean, Peter's got good intentions, right? Isn't that true? So many of us, when we go into a trial... We have good intentions heading into the trial. Peter had good intentions going into the trial. He said, I don't want to deny you. I, I, want to I want to be the kind of guy that would die for you, Jesus. He had good intentions. He had excellent intentions. But now Jesus says when the when trial is actually just about on them, Jesus says to them, and Peter, he's thinking of specifically, I'm, I'm sure, he says, watch and pray. Such you will not fall into temptation, for the Spirit is willing. You have good intentions, but the flesh is weak. You won't be able to follow through on your good intentions in the heat of the trial unless you go deep with God in that place of prayer. And we see that with Polycarp in the, te- in the time of his testing. We see Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Of course, now we know how the story turns out with the disciples. Peter and the disciples, what did they do? Instead of pushing deep into God in prayer, they, what did they do? They fell asleep. They fell asleep, and as a result of not going deep with God in a place of prayer in the hour of their trial, their good intentions, they couldn't live up to their good intentions, they fell apart. Peter denied Jesus three times. Now, thankfully, Jesus has grace. He forgave Peter. Awesome. Later on, Peter went to his death on the cross, and he overcame. He was, a, he was victorious in the end. But I thought to myself, how many of us do not internalize this message? We, look, we read, we all know Peter denied, and we all think, you know, Peter, how many of us would deny because the fact of the matter is, I, we don't internalize this message. I know we don't internalize this message because many of us, you've got a doctor's appointment coming up with a big diagnosis and you're afraid. And how many of us do not go to the place of prayer just before that hour of trial comes? And how many of us, you know, you've got the big diagnosis or you've got something big coming down at work, or a big business decision or a bank decision or a finance crisis, health crisis, whatever it is, you've got a crisis in your life, you've got a big trial... And in that time of trial, we're lazy, we fall asleep, we don't go into that place of prayer, and as a result, we go into our trials with good intentions, but we come out like Peter and we fall miserably short. Jesus actually tells us what to do. In the hour of trial, there's no shortcut. You must go deep with God in a place of prayer. And so Polycarp, in his hour of trial, he knows he's just about to face some serious tests. He says, I got to pray first. And so he stood up right there. He didn't even leave the room. He stood up right there. Um, and he began to pray. They say that the, that the Spirit of God and the grace of God, he was just so full of love and joy in the presence of God, he actually ended up praying for two hours. The soldiers let him. And, and finally, after about two hours, I mean, these guys are just totally amazed. And, uh, you know, we got some wild beasts that got to be fed, so let's get to the arena. And, um, and so they finally, after, he prays. But he, watch and pray, because the Spirit is willing and the flesh is weak. He prays. Now they take him to the arena. And so he gets there, the governor sees him, and the governor is asking him questions of various things. They say that because of his grace and joy and love, he actually won over the governor's heart. The governor no longer wanted to kill him, but he he had to do what he had to do. And so finally, the, the story, as it goes to the end, you find that the governor is now begging Polycarp, please, would you please just burn a little incense to the emperor? Is it such a big deal? Just burn a little incense to the emperor, and then just just renounce Jesus, sort of, and then you can go back to believing in Jesus, but just do it here, and, and I won't have to hurt you, and, and then he's fine, and I'm going to put it up there on the screen. One of the most famous quotes in uh, all the writings of the early church, this is Polycarp, just before his death, he says this, 80 and 6 years have I served him, speaking of Jesus, and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king and saviour? At which point the governor says to him, you know, if, if you don't recant, I mean, if you don't, if, if you don't burn a little incense and, and recant on the whole Jesus thing, I'm going to have to throw you to the wild beasts. And I just love this indomitable, that's the only word, I had to look it up in a thesaurus. I said, God, I need a word to describe a guy like this. And this indomitable old man, filled with the Holy Spirit, tells him this, call them, speaking of the wild beasts, it is unthinkable for me to repent from that which is good to turn to what is evil. To which the governor said, in that case, I'm just going to have to burn you. And I got to put this quote up to, here too. Because this is just, you gotta, we, we need to be exposed to more thinking, more people like this. Polycarp said to him, these are his last words. You threaten me with fire which burns for an hour and is then extinguished. But you know nothing of the fire of the coming judgment and internal punishment reserved for the ungodly. Why are you waiting? Bring on whatever you want. Now that's a bit of a different mindset, isn't it? A bit of a different mindset. I love to read stories like this to my kids, and we need to talk about... Yes, yeah, You do what? My kids are going to turn out different than yours, I'll tell you that. <laughs> Hopefully for the, for the good, but um, I love to read stories like these to my kids, and I love to talk about stories like this. We actually have to talk about our spiritual heritage in the church. Because we need to be exposed to a different mindset than what we have today in in the modern days in the West. This is a radically different mindset. So many people today, if my life isn't going good, even if we don't do it consciously, we'll do it subconsciously, we get bitter at God. Why would God let me go through this? Why would God let this trial last so long? Why would God let my spouse do that? Why would God let me get cancer? Why would God not, and we on and on, why would God let this happen to my child? Why would God let this happen to my family? And on and on and on and on, why would God? And we get bitter inside at God because he doesn't make our lives easier. But we look at men like Polycarp and the apostles, even Jesus himself. We look at many of the Christians around the world today. And not only do they not get mad at God, but Polycarp doesn't get mad at God. Oh God, why would you let me die such a horrible death? Why couldn't I just die? I'm 86. I could have just died peacefully in my sleep, but I have to be burned to death. Does he get mad at God? He says, bring it on. He says, I'm happy to give my life to Jesus. It's a radically different mindset, a mindset we need to be exposed to a lot more often. Rather than getting mad at God because we cling to our lives and want God to make our lives better, rather, I want to joyfully give my life to Jesus in sacrifice. And they say that when he died, he died radiating joy and peace off of his face. And again, it reminds me of the, the disciples, the book of Acts, Acts chapter 5. Uh, the, 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 uh, the religious leaders called the disciples in. You have must stop talking about Jesus everywhere. And they went directly out from that meeting and talked about Jesus. So they called them back in, and they beat them with rods, okay? So you can only imagine. That's not a good thing, all right? And actually, originally, they wanted to just kill them. And one guy stood up and said, well, let's not kill them. Okay, let's just beat them with rods. So they beat them with rods, and I want you to see what happens with the disciples after And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then the disciples left the presence of the council, depressed and discouraged, and they took a break from church for a while. No. And they got bitter at God because why would God, he loves me. Why would he let me go through that? No, they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And as I was meditating on these things thinking about the story of Polycarp and some of these people who have gone before us and those who are persecuted around the world today and the disciples I was I was the Lord was convicting me and I was saying Lord is there anything where I'm complaining in my spirit because I think this is too difficult Do you ever get to that place where it's like this is too difficult for me God wouldn't call me to do that it's too inconvenient it's too painful And rather, this mindset shows us that we can rejoice. Actually, our lives are supposed to be living sacrifices to him. The whole thing is his right to the death. And they rejoice to be able to give their lives to Christ. So anyway, we go back to the letter of the church, to the church in Smyrna. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. So Jesus is introducing himself here to the church at Smyrna. And he does this in each of the seven letters to the seven churches, but he never introduces himself just as Jesus. He doesn't just say, hey guys, it's Jesus. No. He doesn't do it here. He doesn't do it in any of the letters. In every one of the letters, in fact, none of the introductions are the same. Every one of the introductions in the seven letters is different. In each letter, Jesus introduces himself to the church in a unique way by some of his attributes or some of who he is or some of what he does. But he introduces aspects of himself uniquely none of those seven letters are the same that directly apply to what that church in what season that church is in what that church is going through okay so every church gets a different introduction a different aspect of Jesus that he is revealing to them for the season that they're in and for the things they're going to through i'll just show you a couple of examples i won't show you all all seven but like in the letter to the church at ephesus he in- introduces himself as which we saw last week the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, uh, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Uh, the one we'll look at next week, the letter to the church of Pergamum. He introduces himself as the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. And the letter to the church of Thyatira, he introduces, which we'll see in a couple of weeks, he introduces himself as the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. So in each letter, he introduces aspects of himself, attributes of himself, Different, unique, each, each church gets a unique introduction from Jesus, some aspect of themselves that applies directly to what they're going through. Now, I haven't told you anything really new. I mean, you know, any of you who's ever read a commentary on the book of Revelation, uh, or if you look up a commentary or any teaching on the book of Revelation, you'll find everybody, everybody knows this. This is obvious. Everybody's noticed the fact that every letter gets a different introduction, and every introduction of who Jesus is reveals something about Jesus that meets that church right where they're at. Everybody gets that here's what a lot of people don't get. Here's what lots of commentators and teachers and preachers and pastors and Christians have failed to do. We have failed to internalize this message and turn it on ourselves. We read these seven letters and we go, that's neat. God introduced himself to Smyrna and revealed aspects of his character that Smyrna needed to hear. That is so neat. And God introduced himself to Ephesus with with a revelation of his character and attributes that met the needs of what Ephesus needed to know about him. That's neat. And nobody thinks but maybe god wants to do the same thing for me if he did it for those seven churches maybe he wants to do it for me and i would say he most certainly does jesus in every season and trial of your life jesus wants to reveal something of himself every trial and season in your life is an excuse to get to know some new aspect of jesus see he is infinitely he has so many good qualities and he runs so deep. We're going to spend all of eternity worshiping him. And every trial and season you have in this life is an excuse for you to find out and discover and learn something new about God that meets exactly that need. And so Jesus wants to reveal to you. For example, I was praying with a guy recently in my cell group, and they were going through a certain trial. And as I prayed for this, for this person and uh, about this trial that they're right in the middle of, immediately I could just feel the Holy Spirit just speaking in my heart provider. I want to be their provider. I want to reveal myself to them in this season. Now, do we all know in our heads that God is the provider? Yeah, we all know that in our heads. Very few of us have internalized that into our hearts, where we've gone through a season in our life, and we have discovered him and experienced him to be our provider. Not just up here, but experientially. And I felt the Lord saying that I want to be this person's and this family's provider during this season of their life. I've prayed with other people in the past as well, praying with them, and they're going through a whole bunch of stuff, and they need all kinds of wisdom, they need advice, blah, blah, And as you pray for them, suddenly the Lord says, I want to be in this season of their life, I want them to find me to be their counselor. I want them, they know it in their heads, but over the next year, over the next few months, I want them to come to me in prayer and get advice from me, and I'll speak to them and give them wisdom over and over and over again, so that for the rest of their life, they won't just know that I'm their counselor in their head, they'll know I'm their counselor and father, and shepherd, and friend. This last month, during the month of prayer and fasting, as I was praying, one of the things that the Lord showed me, he said, for my life this year, he said, I want, Chris, I want you this year. You know in your head, you know in your head, you've read it in the Bible a thousand times, that I'm the living water, and I'm the bread of life. But Chris, this year, I want you to discover for yourself, I want you to experience me to be your living water and your bread of life. Now, some of you are going, um, first of all, you have to understand, okay, how, and a little rabbit trail, pause, let's rabbit trail. You hear me and Pastor Ray, someone's talking about, you know, the Lord said this, the Lord said that, and then some of you, you might go home and you go, and veins are popping out on your head. Give me a word for 2014, just like Chris. That, that, that is not what I did. I actually know a guy in this church, I love, I love this guy, I love this kind of hardcore so does Jesus. But he, he heard one of our messages here, listening prayer in the prayer closet. One of me or, me or Pastor Ray mentioned, mentioned a prayer closet, and, and uh, he took that literally. He went and shut himself in a closet for eight hours trying to hear God. Okay, now first of all, let me just tell you something. That kind of hardcoreness, God is laughing in heaven. He loves that, all right? <laughs> but it, it's just, that's extreme. That's not what we're talking about. I'm not talking about when I got a word from the Lord for 2014, I was like this. You know what? I'm really just a very regular guy. I try to get an hour with God every day, and every week I miss one or two. <gasps> how are you preaching up there today? <laughs> I got four kids. I got a job I got to finish. I got a stinking driveway that I've been shoveling like crazy, although this last week was a blessing. <laughs> so there's a struggle. This is not about I had to spend 10 hours. I, I was, you, want, you want to know how this came to me? It was a thought, as I was consistently praying and spending time with the Lord and pushing into Him during the prayer and fasting month, this thought just came into my head. And at first, I didn't even recognize it as God. This is thought came, I want to be your living water. And it would, but it just didn't go away. It was kind of there over the course of my life for a while. And finally, I, one day, I just wrote it down. I wonder if God's trying to say something to me. And then, and a little bit later, it's still there. And then, finally, one day, I said to on, I think God, I think Jesus is trying to, He wants me to experience Him to be my living water, my bread of life this year. And then I said, talked with my cell at prayer summit and it got solidified. I wrote it down and I had a word. That's how it came to me, not through. <laughs> no, no. But anyway, that's it. So the Lord said, and He's the hero. This is not about being spiritual. This is not about you have to be spiritual to get a word from the Lord. It's for everyone. The hero of this story is not me. I'm very, very regular. The hero of all of these stories is Jesus. He wants to reveal something of himself to you. Now, for me, he said this year, but this isn't necessarily for you. For me, he said, I want you to be satisfied in me like never before. I want you, Chris, to find that I'm the bread of life, that I can fill your soul like nothing else. And now this year, I've known that all my life in my head. And now over this past month, as I've been pursuing him in this, I'm starting to discover that to be true. And I am finding satisfaction in the Lord that I have never found in him before. I'm losing my desire for other things that I used to run to for satisfaction. Why? It's because of him. He's the hero of the story. Now guess what? He wants to be a hero in your life too. That's the message. These seven churches, each one of them, he came to them and said, you know what you need for this time? You need to discover this about me. Whoa! Smyrna, Ephesus, Ephesus. Pergamum, Thyatira, all of them, he said, I want you to discover this about me. It's perfect for where you're at. Jesus wants to do that for each and every one of us. In the season of life you're in, in the trial you're facing, he wants to show you something about himself that is absolutely necessary and so perfect and so wonderful for you in that time. Shepherd, for some of you, friend, counselor, there's an infinite number of things that he wants to show you, but he wants to do that for each of us. And he's doing it here in these churches. Well, we break it down now for Smyrna. How does he introduce himself? Two things he, he says to them that you need to know about me. First of all, he says, I am the first and the last. And I can't spend all kinds of time here. There was another Bible verse I wanted to show you, but I'm the first and the last. He says, think of it, these Smyrnian, I guess that's a, that's a word I'm making it up, Smyrnian Christians, all right? Um, these Christians from Smyrna, these Smyrnian Christians, are under intense pressure. And they're under intense pressure to worship the emperor. They're in, under intense pressure to worship Rome. And so this tiny little church, they, it, Rome just looks like this huge devouring beast. It's like, who can stand against Rome? It's this huge empire. Who can stand against it? They're going to just, we're, gonna, we're nothing to them. And they're just going to stomp us into, not, not in, and we'll be gone, and it'll be over. And, and Jesus says, first thing you need, you guys need a revelation this year. You need a revelation of me as the first and the last. The first and the last. I existed first before anything else existed. I existed long before the Roman Empire. You might know that in your heads, Smyrna. You need to know it in your hearts. I am the first and the last. To you, from your viewpoint, Rome looks big. But when you get a real perspective and you see me as I am, the tables are turned and Rome looks puny. Because compared to me, Rome is just a speck on the dot of history. On the line of history, Rome is just a dot, a speck. I was here long before Rome, and I'm the last. I'll be here long after. And I win in the end. I get the last word on everything. I'm the first and the last. And so he begins by saying, and some of you here today, you need a revelation. The season you're in today, you need a revelation of God's sovereignty. You know it up here. But you know what? Knowing things about God up here doesn't help you all that much. It's only the start. It's when you get it in here and you know it. That's when it changes you. Jesus says to the church of Smyrna, you need to get a revelation of me, not up here. You need to get a revelation in in here of me, that I am the first and the last. Rome is puny compared to me. And then Jesus moves on to the second thing. And this is is a mind-blowing one. Because the first thing Jesus says is, he encourages them by saying, I'm so big, I'm powerful, I'm in control, I'm the first and the last. Then the second thing he says to them, and I'm the one who died. What? The one who created the universe who has always existed. He's the first and the last. Rome is nothing in front of him. And he is the giver and the author of all life. He died? Yes, he did in Jesus. I died and I came to life. Do you see the two kinds of comfort Jesus is giving at the same time here to the church at Smyrna? The the one kind of comfort, the first kind of comfort is, look how big and powerful I am. The second kind of comfort is, I've suffered too, I understand you do you see how different those are? Does that not make you love Jesus? You can have encouragement in Jesus because no matter what you're going through, he is huge and powerful and sovereign. But there's a second kind of encouragement. And that is, he says, I died. A whole bunch of you, he says to Smyrna, are about to die. And you can take comfort from the fact that I died too. I know what it's like. Isn't there something comforting when you know that someone's been through something? It's a different kind of comfort. One kind of comfort is I'm glad he's in control. One kind of comfort is I can put my head on his shoulder and I can cry with him because he gets me. And Jesus says, you guys are about, some of you are about to be tortured, put in prison. You're about to be killed. Guess what? I died too. I've been through that. Jesus says, I know what it's like to be hated. I know what it's like to be tortured. I know what it's like to die. I died and I came to life and so will you. And you can come to me. And again, we read some of these passages, but we fail to internalize them. We fail to say, wait a minute, that's true of me too. Because you may be here today, and you have gotten that horror diagnosis, cancer or whatever. And you're going through chemo, and you think, well, Jesus never went through chemo. Jesus never went through radiation. You're right, he didn't go through those things, but he had nails put in his wrists. He knows what it's like to die. He knows what it's like to suffer. You can take your sufferings to him. On the one hand, you need to know he is powerful and he's in control. And on the other hand, sometimes you just need to sit in his lap in prayer and weep with him and say, Jesus, this is hard and I'm scared. And he holds you and says, I've been in that place of suffering and pain and I even know what it's like to die and I'll go with you in it. And so he gives two kinds of comfort and I love Jesus, you know, I heard of I've heard of people before, who lost uh, children, and 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 I mean that, that's just the biggest. I mean, and if you're a parent, you know. I mean, that's that's the hard. It's got to be the hardest thing. And and uh, but I know of people. I, I, one couple I, I read about, and they had lost uh, a child, and they were grieving. Of course, and it's painful, and the, the grief just heavy on them. And then one day, the Holy Spirit said. The father knows what it's like to lose a son too. Oh, well, and in that moment, in that moment, suddenly it's not, you're not just comforted because Jesus is in control. You're comforted because God knows how you feel. He's been there. He's not asking you to do anything he wasn't willing to do himself. And he will walk with you in the midst of your trial. I died and I came to life. And so will you. So we go to verse 9. I know your tribulation. And of course now, when you think about it that way, those first two words, I know, take on a whole new meaning. They don't just mean I'm watching and I can see what's happening to you. It does mean that as well. But it also means I know your tribulation because I've been in tribulation. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. So we see at the church, and, and by the way, we'll talk about the Jewish question more. They pop up in some other letters. Unfortun- it's an unfortunate thing of, of church history that many people are hostile towards the Jewish people and think that God has rejected his covenant with them because of verses like this. Not at all what he's saying. Everybody who wrote this in this book, including the New Testament, was a Jew. Jesus was a Jew. Paul was a Jew. All the disciples were Jews. All the first converts were Jews. In every city that Paul went, he said, I go to the Jew first and then the Gentile. They were a huge part of the early church. He's not talking about here the whole nation of Jews has been rejected by Jesus and they're all bad. He's just talking about certain ones of them who were resisting the gospel. But the John who's writing this is a Jewish person. And then we'll talk more about that in the future. But if Jesus can break his covenant with the Jewish people as Christians... We can't have any confidence he'll keep his promises to us. They are still an important part of God's end time plan. We'll touch on that another time. I don't have time here. But we see three things. Three things that the church of Smyrna is dealing with. They're dealing with tribulation. They're dealing with poverty. They're dealing with slander. And in the Greek, if you look at the Greek there for poverty, there's a couple different words that they could use in Greek for poverty. One meant poor in the sense that you didn't have very much. You didn't have enough for any luxuries. You had just barely enough to get by. You were poor. You were poor. You didn't have, there was no extra. There was no margin in your life, okay? That's not the word that's used here. The word that is used here in this verse is the word for absolutely nothing. It's the word, it means absolutely destitute and poor. They had nothing. Jesus says, I know your poverty. Now you say, well, why do you bring that up? I'll tell you why I bring that up. Because Jesus doesn't rebuke them for it. He does not tell them, if you just had a bit more faith, I'd like to bless your finances, you just don't have enough faith. No, no, the church of Smyrna, one of only two, them and the church of Philadelphia, that has no rebukes in their letters from Jesus. It's all just, I love you, stay strong. And the reason I bring that up is because this prosperity teaching that is so so popular in our country today, and of course it only could be popular in a few handful of countries in the world today. It's not popular in China where everybody's poor. It's not popular in Africa where everybody's poor. It can only be popular in certain countries where, where a bunch of people are somewhat wealthy. But these prosperity teachers teach a warped view of the Bible, and I'm, the reason I just bring it up here again is because this is where people go astray, is when they don't actually go in here and walk with God and see what's in here. Jesus does not promise the Christians at Smyrna who he loves deeply and does not rebuke. He does not promise them, I'm going to give you blessings financially. He says, I know your poverty, you have nothing, but in my eyes, you're rich. In my eyes, you're rich. But he doesn't promise to rescue them from it. Okay, he promises them something different. This is what he promises. Verse 10. Do not fear which you are about to suffer. Jesus does not promise the church at Smyrna, the Christians at Smyrna, I'm going to take away your poverty. He does not promise them, I'm going to take away your tribulation. He does not promise them, I'm going to take away your slander. He doesn't promise any of those three things. He doesn't say, I'm going to take them away. He says, you don't have to fear them. He doesn't say, I'm going to take away your poverty. He says, you don't have to fear poverty. Because I was poor, I know what that's like, and I'm going to go with you in that, and you will overcome in that. Be strong in it. Be strong in tribulation, be strong in poverty, be strong in slander. And if you are a follower of Christ today, we can expect, it should not cause bitterness in our lives if we're walking with the Lord. We should expect tribulation, poverty, and slander. If those things happen, it should not be a surprise. I'm not saying that everybody here is going to end up in poverty In our country, that it just doesn't work that way. So many of us maybe won't struggle with that one. But we should expect that if any of those three things do happen to us, it does not make us bitter. Because Jesus says, do not fear it. Do not fear it. It's one of the most frequent of all commands in the Bible. Do not fear. But I wonder how many of us here today are living in anxiety and fear. But the Bible says you don't have to be in anxiety and fear. Jesus says, do not fear. Paul said this, Philippians 4, verses 6 and 7. Do not be anxious about anything. That's a big word. What of your fears and anxieties that you brought to church today doesn't fit in that word anything? Can you find anything that isn't covered by the word anything? Is that not deep thinking here this morning? Do not be anxious about anything except your marriage. No, just anything. Do not be anxious about anything except it's okay to be anxious about your kids. No. Do not be anxious about anything but in everything by prayer and supplication. And we just... We had a whole month. Prayer and supplication. It's like, that would include prayer and fasting. Pushing into God. This is how you deal with anxiety and fear. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And then look what happens. Verse 7. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now, here's the thing about this verse. That's a famous little passage. Oh, it gets quoted. Christian radio... Christian books, Christian publications. And we, lots of, I bet you some of you here have this on your fridge. I hope you do. That's good. I'm not making fun of you for that. Or you have it on a plaque. And we think, this is a great verse. We all love this verse. But you know what? It sure doesn't work for most of us, does it? We quote this verse. We listen to this verse. We tritely say this verse. And then we're still worried and anxious. You want to know why? Because this verse doesn't say, quoting this verse will take away your anxiety and fear. Knowing this verse doesn't take away your anxiety and fear. You know what? This verse only applies to those people who actually go into the place, horrors of prayer. Who don't just tritely throw it off. Woo, that was great. On the morning drive into work, I heard them quote, you know, Philippians 4, 6, to 7, and I feel so good about myself that I don't have to be anxious today. That verse does not apply to you. That verse was there. To remind you that you better get alone with God at some point. And if you get alone with God in the hour of your trial, as you face these big things in that place of prayer, he will give you the peace of Christ that transcends all understandings. But there's no shortcut. If you don't get the peace from somebody else talking to you about their prayer time, and you don't get the peace of Christ by hearing about prayer, you get the peace of Christ by going to him and giving him your prayers and your supplications. And so, Jesus says... Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. And then he keeps going. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days, you will have tribulation. You will. He says it to the church, you will. You will have tribulation. I'm not going to keep you Christians. Just because you're a Christian doesn't mean I keep you from all these things. You will have tribulation for 10 days. Now, and there's a whole bunch of, bunch of things going on there. I don't have time to get into that now. It could mean within 10 days. Whatever it means, it means it's a, it's a period of time. And Jesus is sovereign over it. Okay, but it, it was longer than 10 days. I mean, they were in tribulation for many years there in Smyrna. But now look at Jesus' call to the church at Smyrna. And actually, it's not just his call to the church at Smyrna. Wouldn't we love it if that's all it was? Whoo! Jesus called those Smyrnian Christians to be faithful unto death. Good thing he doesn't call us to do that, eh? He only calls us Western Christians to believe some things about him and go to church every week. But boy, that's a hard call. No. This is his call on every person who names his name and says they want to follow him. Here's his call. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. We have reduced. It's such an unfortunate thing. It is an unfortunate, unfortunate, unfortunate thing. We have reduced Christianity down to, I believe it in my head. I believe it in my head. I believe Jesus is the Son of God. I believe I'm forgiven. Well, amen. You need to believe those things in order to be saved. No question. That's a good start. You have to have that. But the Christian life is not, I believed something once in my head, and now I'm fine. And I can walk out on my marriage and come into church that Sunday and worship Jesus and listen to a message and be all happy. Well, how... How are you in church so happy when you're doing this stuff to your spouse? And you're walking out on your kids and your spouse and you're committing adultery. How is it that you're happy doing that and you're in church the next Sunday? Well, I'm still a Christian. I believe in Jesus in my head. Oh, that's right. That's the call of Christianity. Believe in Jesus in your head and then do whatever comes easy. That's right. No. Be faithful unto death. This is the call of Jesus on all Christians. Not just to ones who will physically be killed. This is Jesus' call to all of us. Be faithful unto death in the hard things. To the end of your life. Not just you started the Christian life 30 years ago. And now you still go to church, but you're not really... No, 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 no. Jesus says, you want the crown of life? This is actually supposed to be motivating to us, this verse. When you're in the midst of a hard trial, when your marriage is on the rocks, when your business is here, when this is going over here in your health instead of getting bitter at Jesus, instead of getting mad, instead of doing the easiest thing and quitting, we should be motivated by thinking there's a crown of life. If I am faithful unto death, be faithful unto death in the hard things to the last day of your life. That's the Christian message. You are to be faithful until your last breath. You don't get bitter at me because things got hard you don't give up because things got hard because that's not what the re- the reward is for those who hang on and are faithful unto death unto death and for those people who are faithful unto death Jesus says you should be motivated by this i will give you the crown of life verse 11 he who has an ear let him hear what the spirit says to the churches the one who conquers not the one who believes things in his head. That's a good start. That's the place that, I mean, you have to begin there. But not the one who believes in his head. No, no. The one who conquers. The Christian life is about being a conqueror. And what's a conqueror? Someone who's perfect? No. Does not say be perfect unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. None of us can be perfect. We are all extremely human. I am extremely human. We all sin. We all mess up. And after that, we have to repent and turn back to Jesus. Does not say be perfect unto death does not say any of that. It says, be faithful unto death. And I will give you the crown of life. And then he says, to the the one who conquers, who pushes through to the end and never gives up and doesn't take the easy way out and pushes through. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. And that was a phrase that the early Christians took from the, the Jewish rabbis of that time. The second death referred to hell. And so Jesus says, to the one who conquers, to the one who doesn't just treat Christianity as a beginning, but treats it as a race, a marathon to the end. And to the end of their days, they push into me. To those ones, to the one who conquers, they, Jesus says, I will give you the crown of life and you will not be hurt by the second death. To the one who conquers. That's what Christianity is. And so I got a weekly challenge. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put it up in between or after the service story and, and you can copy it down if you want. We'll also put it on Facebook. I'll email it out and all that sort of stuff but I don't want to spend any time there. Sometimes I think what we need to do is we need to just have these moments in our lives where we consciously commit ourselves to this. Where we just stand up and say, you know what, Jesus? Regardless of what happens to me, I'm going to follow you. Till the end of my days, Jesus, I'm going to follow you. Regardless of what happens in this marriage thing that's going on right now, regardless of what happens in this business thing I'm going through right now, regardless of what happens in this health thing or this thing or this thing or whatever, Jesus, I'm actually in this to the end. Be faithful unto death. Jesus, I'm committing to you. That I want to be faithful to the end. And so the worship team is going to come up and lead us in, in the last song, but I want us just to stand, and we're going to, I'm just going to pray a prayer commitment, and if you want, you can pray with me. And, and you can agree with me, or you don't have to. And that's, that's fine. If you don't want to, that's, that's okay. But if you do, I think this is an opportunity for us again to commit ourselves to say, I want to be a person who's faithful unto the death. I want to be a person who's all in. I want to be a conqueror, not just a head believer. And if that's your desire in your heart today, then I want you to agree with me in prayer as I pray this prayer of commitment. Lord Jesus... You have not called us to an easy life. You've not called us to an easy life. I praise you though, Jesus, that you've also not called us to anything you weren't willing to do yourself. You call us to be faithful unto the death. You were faithful to the death. And you will walk with us and you will enable us by your Holy Spirit power to be faithful unto the death. But Lord Jesus, we're just saying here today, this is one of those moments, we just have a moment to consciously say this to you. I am this morning. And we in this room together this morning are saying, Jesus, we want to be faithful to the death people. Faithful in the hard things people faithful in the trials, people. Conquerors to the end. Jesus, we are committing ourselves here this morning, this afternoon already, actually, I should say, but, Lord Jesus, we are committing ourselves here today to being faithful. This is a walk we want to, this is a journey we're going to walk to the end of our lives. That's the kind of people we want to be. Would you give us the strength to do that? Would you give us the strength to do right? Would you give us the ability not to get bitter at you? when things don't go our way, because we want to radically give our lives to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.